You are listening to audio from Western Meadows Baptist Church. Here at WMBC, we are disciples of Jesus who make disciples through the teaching of Scripture, prayer, and living together in community. If you would like to listen to more, go to our Apple Podcasts or to our website, wmbc.church. Please do not edit, copy, or sell this material without prior permission of WMBC. Thank you for listening. Amen. Well, Mark chapter 6 is where we are this morning. I think uh, covering chapter 5 in two sermons, I think, is, is, our, is our current record for the Gospel of Mark. Um, and I believe a record that we will not break. So, just just a, just a heads up. We're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Um, so, covering a significantly smaller uh, amount of verses than we covered last week. And before we dive into this, there is a passage in the Gospel of Luke that I think, um, that I think gives us a, 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 a really good context for this, a backdrop for this passage. And so, um, in Luke chapter 4, we find recorded Jesus' first visit to his hometown of Nazareth. And the reason I say his first visit to the hometown of Nazareth is because I think Mark, this passage that we have here of Mark where it describes Jesus' visit back to Nazareth, and Matthew's parallel passage, I believe is is describing Jesus' second return back to his hometown after his ministry began. And the reason for that are quite a quite a bit. There's a lot of reasons why I think that those, why these, these are two distinct passages. Matthew and Mark are talking about his second visit, and Luke chapter 4 is talking about his first visit. But let me just read Luke's passage um, from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And I think that as we study our passage in Mark, we'll see all of the differences that go into this. But here is how Jesus's first visit after he began his ministry, after he had been baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, and after he had been tempted in the wilderness, and after he goes and begins to proclaim the good news, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, right? After he begins his ministry, he goes back to Nazareth and begins to proclaim to them. And so here's how Luke describes his first trip to Nazareth. And it says, verse 14, And Jesus <clears throat> returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, 
Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephathah in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could, not throw, so they could throw him down the cliff. In passing through their midst, he went away. Now, in our present text, some time has passed. We don't know how long. But Jesus returns once more to Nazareth. And although they do not attempt to kill him this time, as they did in that passage, their hearts were still no less hardened at his presence. And so, let's read our passage, pray to the Lord to be gracious to us, and let's dive in. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Hoses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his, own ho- and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word this morning. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear the words that you are speaking to us. Father, we pray that your scriptures would be more desirous to us than gold and even much fine gold, that they would be sweeter on our tongues than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Father, we cannot live by bread alone, but instead we are sustained by every word that comes from your mouth. Give us, O Lord, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that can only be satisfied in you. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. And we said, Amen. Verse 1, And he went away from there back to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Where was there? Well, it was wherever he got off the sea, as we saw at the beginning of last, the last chapter, right? So remember, all of this is kind of one big arc of Mark in, this, in, in his gospel, right? Um, so at the beginning of chapter 4, we saw that he went to the Sea of Galilee, um, and he began to teach them. And this massive crowd came to him, and so he had his disciples pull a boat out in a little ways into the sea for him. And so he sat down on the boat, and he spent all day teaching them in parables, kind of using the lake as sort of a natural amphitheater theater having them fan out around uh, the shore of the sea right and then after that day was finished without even getting back onto the onto the land says that 
him and the disciples, they just went out in the boat to the other side of the sea, right? And that's when they got caught in the massive storm when the disciples thought they were going to die, but Jesus spoke, word, spoke two words to them, peace, be still, and the storm stopped. And then they got to the other side, and immediately this naked demoniac comes running out to them, this terror of the whole region of the Gerasenes, right? But he doesn't run to attack Jesus, Instead, he runs and he falls down at Jesus' feet, and Jesus commands the legion of demons that the man had to be cast out of him. And the Gerasenes, hearing of this, they come and they beg Jesus to leave their region. And so he gets back in the boat, goes to the other side, and as soon as he gets to the other side of the sea, he's met with that large crowd once again. But among that crowd we saw last week was a ruler of the synagogue, a man named Jairus, who came And he begged Jesus to come and heal his little daughter who was dying. And on the way, Jesus healed a woman who who had been sick for 12 years and had wasted all of her money on physicians that tried to heal her but couldn't. But she came into contact with the great physician who was able to heal her. And as soon as they finished that, as soon as uh, Jesus finished speaking with her, they received news that Jairus' young daughter had died. And so Jesus tells him, do not fear only believe and goes back to the house grabs her by the hand and as easily as her mother and father would have called her out of sleep on a Sunday morning he tells her little girl arise get up it's time to wake up right and he calls her out of death as if he was calling her out of sleep right so verse 1 tells us after that (laughs) he went away from there wherever that there was when he got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee after being in the region of the Gerasenes. He now goes to his hometown. This is presumably Nazareth, right? Because as we read from that passage in Luke chapter 4, where he was raised, where he was brought up. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, as you will remember, to fulfill the prophecies that he would be born in the city of David, the city where David was raised. But He grew up in Nazareth, so as Matthew 2, verse 23 says, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, again, we don't know how much time has passed between that first passage that we read from Luke chapter 4, that first time that Jesus visited Nazareth after he had begun his earthly ministry. But, as Mark has shown us, Jesus is very popular. His popularity has only been growing as we've been reading the Gospel of Mark, right? The crowds have just been getting larger, pressing in on him. As we saw at the end of chapter 3, they were so large, they were so large and pressed in on him, they couldn't even eat bread when he was in his own household, right? And so certainly, the Nazarenes would have had to have known this. If Jesus was beginning to be popular at his first visit, that they'd already heard of some of the miracles that he had done in Capernaum, Jesus was now a full-blown celebrity. And as we'll see in just a couple of passages in this text, even King Herod was now beginning to question, who is this Jesus that everyone is talking about? But this time, Jesus doesn't enter Nazareth alone. What does it say in verse 1? It says, and his disciples followed him there is a very significant point to be made about his disciples being with him as he goes to Nazareth, but we will place it on hold until next week. So just keep that in your pockets, right? For now, let's just simply note that his general popularity and his disciples being with him 
is probably what keeps this particular visit to Nazareth from going as poorly as the last visit where they were so wrathful against him that they tried to throw him off of a cliff, right? Things are a little bit different now. Let's continue to read. Verse 2, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Hoses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So, as is Jesus' normal pattern when he enters into a town, he goes into the synagogue, and on the Sabbath he goes and he teaches, right? Because they had that pattern to where an itinerant rabbi could go in and and could teach the people, right? And as he teaches them, we're told that they were astonished. They were astonished by the things that he was saying. Like almost everyone that we have read in Mark's gospel, they're still wrestling to make sense of who Jesus is. They simply could not wrap their minds around him. Jesus baffled them. And of course, as we've said, we've seen this similar sort of amazement in the previous passages. The disciples were amazed at Jesus after he calmed the sea. The Gerasenes were amazed at Jesus when they saw the demoniac in sane and in his right mind and clothed. The household of Jairus was amazed after, the, after Jairus' daughter had been raised from the dead. But now notice that some amazement is good and some amazement is negative, right? So the disciples and the household, and the former demoniac, their astonishment moved them toward Jesus, right? But the garrisons that saw the demoniac healed, their amazement, their astonishment at Jesus actually pushed them, pushed them away from him or led them to push themselves away from Jesus, right? They begged him to leave their region. The reality is that everyone who encountered Jesus struggled to understand him. But the people of Nazareth, I think Mark gives us this little glimpse of them for a particular reason. They had a very unique hurdle to overcome. They knew him. They knew Jesus. These are the people that he had grown up with. And Nazareth being a town of about 500 people, (laughs) Jesus most certainly knew most of the people in the town, right? Now, they can have... They have no doubt heard of all the wonders that Jesus has done. And recall in Mark that the only previous mention of Jesus' family before they're mentioned here in this passage was back in chapter 3 when they were doing what? They came to get Jesus because they said he was out of his mind. The crowds were now so big, so big that Jesus couldn't even eat bread within his own house and his family were worried sick about him because, as we said back in that passage, People, all throughout this time period, would rise up and claim to be the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the Holy One of God, the one who was going to deliver Israel from the hand of its oppressors. And almost every single one of those ended up dying a very violent death, right? People who claim to be revolutionaries almost always end up dead, right? And Jesus' family, when these rumors are going about that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, his family are worried, sick about him. So they, presumably Mary has somewhat of an understanding, right? I think we could say that Mary is a believer, but she's, as a mother, she was worried about him. But his brothers, we know, were not believers at this time. They're worried about their brother. 
And what we can see in this is the, the inhabitants of Nazareth, probably through Jesus' family, have probably heard of many of these wonderful things that Jesus is doing. And so when he comes and begins to teach to them, they have a couple of questions that raise in their minds. And notice the first three questions that they give. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So notice, first of all, they're not denying Jesus' wisdom in his teaching. And they're not denying that Jesus is not doing mighty works. But notice that there's a separation here. They're not applying they're not, they're, not, they're, they're not applying the mighty works or the wisdom to come from Jesus himself. They're asking, where did Jesus get these things, right? They're treating these things as if they are separate from Jesus himself. They had no category within their minds for how Jesus could naturally possess such wisdom and power. And so they pondered where they came from. They certainly could not have come from Jesus because, after all, they knew him. And that's exactly what the final two questions that they ask emphasize. The reason that they could not believe that the mighty works were coming from Jesus himself, that they were coming from, that his wisdom was coming from him, is because, verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Moses, and Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us, Right? So the first point that they make is that Jesus is a carpenter. He is the carpenter of the town, right? In R.C. Sproul, he makes a wonderful point. He says that they don't call him, in this passage, the son of Joseph, the carpenter. No, no, they acknowledge that Jesus himself is a carpenter. And he makes the point that the Greek word there is tekton, which is where we get the word architect from. So it means builder, and so the word architect means the chief builder, right? And he makes the point, because a lot of times we think of, uh, well, I mean, this is translated here as carpenter, one who works with wood. But that Greek word tekton can also mean things like stonemason, or it can just mean a general builder, one who builds things with his hands, whatever, whatever object he would be using to build with, right? And that's actually probably what Jesus was in a town as small as Nazareth. He probably didn't work exclusively with wood. He probably worked with whatever he had right? And so the, the point of them saying, is this not the carpenter, is Jesus was a construction worker, right? Probably a good portion of people in Nazareth had things in their home that Jesus himself had either built for them or fixed for them, right? And in the same way that we don't necessarily view construction workers today as the academic elite of society. They had the same view of construction workers in this day, right? You didn't expect a tecton, a worker, to be a rabbi, to come and sit in the synagogue and teach people with the wisdom that Jesus was proclaiming. And so they were asking that question, isn't he just a carpenter? We have things that he's built for us. And now he's sitting here teaching us. But then the second thing that they call into question is that they knew his family. So they knew him as a carpenter, as a worker. But then they also knew his family. They knew his mother, his brother, and they say his sisters are here with us right now. And it's also really significant that, if you remember that 
passage in Luke, they say, is this not the son of Joseph, right? And that's how people would have referred to anyone back in the day. You traced your lineage through the male in the family, right? Through the father. And so the fact that they refer to him here as the son of Mary, even if Joseph is already dead, which, which is what many people presume is where he was, right? That he had died sometime before Jesus entered into his ministry. It's still really weird that they would have called him the son of Mary. And so many people speculate that this is <clears throat> them implying that they know that Jesus had an illegitimate birth. They know that Joseph was not Jesus' real father, right? And so, if we think that their wrath has dwindled any, I don't think it has. It's just simmering. Just simmering under the surface. Now they're bringing, now they're bringing out the rumors against Jesus, right? Now, having questioned all these things, Mark gives us their conclusion. So they say, how can, how can Jesus be doing all these things? How can he be teaching with such wisdom? We know that he's a, he's a blue-collar worker. He hasn't received any formal education, and we know his family. Some of his family are sitting here with us right now. How in the world can he do this? After they question all of those things, Mark gives us their conclusion. And they took offense at him. The Greek word for their offense is the origin of our word scandal. They were literally scandalized by him. And they're scandalized by him because they knew him. J.C. Ryle notes that it is an awful truth that in religion, more than anything else, familiarity breeds contempt. Even though the Nazarenes were near to Jesus longer than any other people on this planet, they became blinded by his ordinariness. G. Campbell Morgan, he goes so far as to place the Nazarenes here in the same category as those scribes from Jerusalem who said that Jesus was doing his mighty signs and wonders, because again, they didn't deny that Jesus was not doing wondrous miracles. But they said it was by the power of the prince of demons that Jesus was casting out demons, right? And so I think his logic is sound. They're obviously saying that Jesus is doing, is doing these mighty works through another power. And because they're rejecting him, they obviously don't believe that he's doing them through God. So what else is there? Yet, here another point that Morgan makes, and this is so good. He says, listen once again to these men of Nazareth and notice their reaction to their criticism upon themselves. They say, he is one of us. Therefore, he is incapable of being an instrument of good. Mark how their criticism of him, how they understood it, was condemnation of themselves. They said, this man who has worked by my side cannot teach me anything. Well, why not? Well, because he's on my level. Then you can never teach anyone anything. Well, they say, this man who comes from our village cannot come back to our village and teach us anything. Why not? Well, because he's one of us. Then the whole community labors under the disability of being unfit for doing anything that in itself is great. Oh, these critics of Jesus of Nazareth, how tacitly and unconsciously they were confessing their own limitations. Now, we see in Jerusalem, in some of the other Gospels, how people question Jesus and say, how could this be the Christ? Because can anything good come from Nazareth? 
Well, that's the people in Jerusalem, right? That's the capital. That's the, that's the big city, right? But what we have here is the people of Nazareth who are essentially making that same confession of themselves. How could anything good come from here? You see, they saw in themselves nothing notable. And to them, Jesus was one of them. So there should be nothing notable about him. Now, sadly, this, med- this mentality is not unique to the people of Nazareth. Rather, they displayed a very common human tendency to despise the greatness of others out of a sense of inferiority of self. Now, I'm convinced that this is one of the main reasons why so many people are addicted to following celebrity gossip, which, let me remind you, is still gossip. Just because you don't know them, and just because they seem larger than life, doesn't make it any less sinful, right? Now, I think that the reason that that's so popular is because, although celebrities have fame and fortune, learning the gritty details of their broken lives brings them back down to earth, and it reassures us that they are just like us. Or, maybe even, well, I'm really better than them, right? They may have fame. They may have fortune. But look how unhappy they are. I've really got it better. Or perhaps we could point to how many argue that reality television actually makes people more immoral by exposing them to acts of immorality so that we can subconsciously say to ourselves, well, at least I'm not that bad. Right? We like to bring people down. Because we don't want to rise to their level. When we see greatness in someone else, we don't, want to, we don't want to see that as a challenge to be something more ourselves. It's easier to just strip them down, right? And of course, this is one of the reasons why socialism and communism cannot work. Because in order to, attreat, to achieve absolute equity in this life, that's what you have to do, is you have to bring people down to the lowest common denominator, Right? One of my favorite illustrations of this is if I were to have a, play a basketball game against LeBron James, then he would have to have a very significant handicap in order for the game to be fair, right? With all of his natural talent and with all of his massive practice, if I am to stand any hope of actually scoring a one single point on him in a basketball game, then he's got to come down to my level because I can't get to his, Right? Not to mention that he's probably at least a foot taller than me, right? Maybe more. I don't know. So, all that is to say that the Nazarenes aren't unique. This is a very common human mentality. That we don't want to be in the presence of those who are better than us at anything. We want to bring people down to our level. And in Jesus' presence, they rightly felt his superiority to them. They felt his glory. They felt the greatness of Christ and they took offense at him. Also, he thinks he's better than us. Well, he was. Interestingly, this is still the greatest scandal of Christianity. Now, don't get me wrong. There are many scandalous doctrines within the Bible. Today, because of Charles Darwin, creation is now a very scandalous doctrine of Christianity, right? Hell has almost always been one of the scandalous doctrines of the Bible, right? The fact that 
God, a loving God that John says is the God who is love, which cast people into suffering for all eternity. It's rightly scandalous. And even things such as grace and atonement are scandalous in and of themselves. And yet the greatest scandal has always been and will always be Jesus himself. And indeed, Paul says so himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, where he specifically points to the scandal of Christ on the cross. And he says this, this passage is worth hearing in its entirety. He says, For the word of cross, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Notice what Paul says here. For Jews demand signs, that is, wonders, miracles. And Greeks, those who are not Jews, they demand wisdom. But Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And notice those are the same two elements that the, Nazare- that the Nazarenes are questioning here, right? They acknowledge that Jesus has wisdom. They acknowledge that Jesus is doing mighty works. And that's exactly what Paul says. The Jews are demanding signs, mighty works, and the Greeks are looking for wisdom, and Jesus had both of them. But he didn't have them in the way people want. Jesus was a scandal. He was a stumbling block for those who think that they want wisdom, but they want it in the way that they want it. For those who think that they want mighty signs and wonders, but they want them to be at their beck and call. They want to see the power of God, but they want it to be a manageable power of God. They want it to act on their own, on their own command, on their own control. So the Nazarenes, they acknowledge both the signs and wisdom of Jesus. And so what was the problem? They didn't want Jesus. They saw that he had wisdom. They saw that he could do mighty works. They just didn't want Jesus. They scorned the superiority of Christ. God himself had quite literally been dwelling among them, and yet they rejected his merciful condensation. The one through whom and for whom and by whom all things were made, made his home with the people of Nazareth. what, 28 years, something like that? He made his home with them, and they could not endure even a minuscule fraction of his glory as he's manifesting it. And you see, brothers and sisters, the sorrowful reality for the Nazarenes is that just as Jesus humbled himself by becoming man, and then humbled himself even more by being crucified, yet he was then raised to life And he was exalted at the right hand of the Father so that he's been given the name that is above every name. In the same way, he says, that those who humbly confess their need for Christ and submit to him will be exalted. Isn't that interesting? 
Just as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what they're missing as the greatness of Christ, as the superiority of Christ is a stumbling block to them. As they refuse to accept that Jesus could possibly be better than them. Even though it is through him that they exist. What they miss is that Christ came down to us in order to raise us up with him. We couldn't get to him, so he comes down for us. And now, as we studied last year in Ephesians, we are in Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. He exalts us to be with him. And yet they miss all of this for their unbelief. Now we come to Jesus' reaction in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So again, just as he did in Luke chapter 4, Jesus laments that the prophets often find the least amount of honor in their hometown and among their own relatives. Now, we should pause here to take great care that Jesus, to note that Jesus does not pronounce these words over us. You see, living in the Bible Belt, I think, can kind of feel like Nazareth sometimes. Jesus is so cultural here that it's almost like having, like, like us living in his hometown. Everyone's heard of Jesus' name. And almost everyone thinks that they know him, that they know who Jesus is. And so if you share the gospel with somebody, oh, no, no, it's all right, I know that, right? But like the Nazarenes, most simply think that Jesus is a good guy with some wise and godly words to say and who may have done some really incredible things. But he's not their Lord. He's not their Messiah. And he's not their Savior. As back then, so too today, Jesus refuses to yield. He refuses to play the game of cultural Christianity. The judge of all the earth refuses to be judged by arrogant eyes. And the great physician refuses to cure those who obstinately declare themselves to be well. Which brings us to maybe one of the most perplexing statements of this passage. Mark tells us that Jesus could do no mighty work there. What does that mean? (laughs) Is Mark saying that Jesus' power was somehow limited by the lack of faith that he found among the Nazarenes? Now, Sproul makes the argument, and he says, because Jesus did his earthly ministry through the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that it is very true, what Mark says, that Jesus could do no mighty work there because God the Father had pronounced a judgment over the, city, over the town of Nazareth and had made it to where the Holy Spirit would not give Jesus the power to do a mighty work there, right? Maybe. I like J.C. Ryle's explanation really well. He says, This expression, of course, cannot mean that it was impossible for our Lord to do mighty works there and that he had the will to do mighty works, but he was stopped and prevented by a mighty power greater than his own. Such a view would be dishonoring to our Lord and in fact would be a practical denial of his divinity. With Jesus, nothing is impossible. If he had willed to do works, he had the power. The meaning, he goes on, 
evidently must be that our Lord would not do any, any mighty work there because, he, because of the unbelief that he saw. He was prevented by what he perceived was the state of people's hearts. He would not waste signs and wonders on an unbelieving and hardened generation. He could not do a mighty work without departing from his rule according to your faith, be it unto you. He had the power in his hands, but he did not will to use it. Now, there's one other element of that statement that we should put in context. Within the context of this arc of the Gospel of Mark that we have been seeing, this is a particularly hard-hitting point, right? Because as we've said, we have seen Jesus calm a storm. We have seen him command an entire host of hell. We have seen him heal the unhealable. And we have seen him lift up a girl from death itself as if it was nothing more than sleep. All this cumulatively shows to us that Jesus has the power to push back the cosmos, hell, disease, and even death itself. There was all those mighty works, those mighty works that we have seen done in those contexts, in those contexts. But now what we find here is we find a condition in which Jesus will not do a mighty work. Condition in which his mighty works are halted. Not by the cosmos, not by hell, not by disease, not by death, but because of unbelief. And so when we think about that, I think Morgan's point that I just mentioned in passing earlier about these Nazarenes being of the same heart as those scribes of Jerusalem that attributed Jesus' power to being demonic, I think actually makes a lot of sense, right? Because you see back in that passage, Jesus told us, all sins will be forgiven except for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Which is essentially saying, All who desire to be forgiven will be forgiven. All who submit themselves to God will be forgiven. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven except for the sin of refusing to submit. Except for the sin of refusing to bow. Except for the sin of refusing to submit to God's Holy Spirit. The one sin that will not be forgiven is the sin that refuses forgiveness. And in the same way, what we see here is the only condition in which Jesus does not do his mighty works is the place in which people don't want his mighty works to be done. Now, don't get me wrong. Like anybody showing up to a blockbuster movie, they want to see a spectacle. They want to see something cool, right? They want to see him do a mighty work, but not by faith. They don't want to see him do a mighty work because they want to be rescued, because they want to be saved. They want him to do tricks for them. Dance, monkey, dance. And he won't. So he refuses. He can calm the storm. He can cast out the host of hell. But when people say, I won't believe in you, what does he do? He leaves. (laughs) And says that he goes to the other towns. But before that, it's interesting that Jesus marvels at their unbelief. Now again, all through the Gospel of Mark, we've been seeing people marveling at Jesus. 
From chapter 1, they've been astonished at his teaching. And in all these passages that we've seen, the disciples have been astonished. The Gerasenes have been astonished. The house of Jairus has been astonished. And now it's Jesus' turn to be astonished. And he marvels, not for anything good, but he marvels at the hardness of their hearts. And again, this is where we see the love of Jesus. Because these are people that he grew up with. These are people that he was raised with. These are people that he loved. And I think the reason that he marvels is because, can you still not see? He comes back to them a second time, giving them another shot to believe in him, to see his glory. And yet they still reject. They still cast him aside. He's a scandal too big for them. They trip over him. They stumble over the stone that the builders have rejected. And so, of course, we know that Isaiah 53 says that Christ would be despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows well acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But I have to think that this particular rejection stung, especially with Christ. His hometown must have cut particularly deep with him. But Jesus does not beg and he doesn't plead for them to believe in him. What it says is, he went about among the villages teaching. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, and so he moved on. He went to the other villages, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And brothers and sisters, this should be a reminder to us, first of all, that the gospel is never stopped by rejection. May that be an encouragement to us. That though the gospel seems to bear no fruit, though it seems to make no headway in a particular place, the Spirit of God moves on. The Spirit of God will continue to cover the earth. And if one place does not accept, then the dust is shaken off of the feet and it goes to another place where people will accept. But it's also a warning that the day of hearing the gospel and of being called to follow Christ is not infinite. Those who continue to reject faith in Christ are not guaranteed the ability to believe tomorrow. As R.C. Sproul says, what is it about Christ that offends you? The great danger is not that we would be offended by Christ, but it is that Christ will be offended by us. He says, all who trip over the scandalon, the scandalous Christ, will have his offense in return. And so let us learn from the people of Nazareth. Oh, brothers and sisters, indeed, though we are no better than the people of Nazareth, let us embrace the scandal of Christ. Let us embrace his scandalous claim that he is God-made flesh, that he is divine, and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there is no path to God except through him. However scandalous that may be, Let us face Jesus fully and truthfully, not according to our own terms, but as he presents himself in scriptures. And let us hear his words and respond by clinging to his cross for salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we praise you indeed for the scandalous Christ. We praise you that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
that the one who is a man of sorrows, despised by men, has become the king of all, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, before whom every knee will one day bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us grace to embrace that scandal. Lord, where we, where we doubt, we pray the prayer of the man from just later on in the book of Mark that we believe would you help our unbelief. Father, give us grace to cling to Christ as our hope and as our salvation, to see him as he truly is, not as we would desire him to be, to not make an idol of Christ in our own minds according to our own desires and our own wills, but instead to face him as he is, to take him as he is, and to be transformed and changed, to be molded into his image, to be made a part of his people, his body, the church. Father, may that be true of each and every one of us. Let us cling to the cross of Christ and the scandal that it brings. Today, whether it is for the first time or for the thousandth time, draw us to our Lord. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen.